are back for episode three of um, Malzahn FM podcast. And we are bit, this week we are dealing with the entire book two of Barnes and Mill entitled simply Darugistan. Yep. Um, I'm pretty excited about this. Uh, oh. Darugistan's my favorite location in the series. And uh, it's got some of the best characters there, so uh, oh, yes. which we're about to start uh, meeting up with now. <laughs> yeah. So uh, chapter five, where we start with uh, two poems from uh, Mr. Fishy, Mr. Fisher. Uh, so I have to say that I really like his uh, poetry. It really like imbues like the sense of uh, intrigue and uh, mystery and uh, you know, sneakiness, which is what uh, Darujistan really is all about. Yeah, yeah, I really like it. I like the way that the first uh, sort of poem for book two, it just seems like uh, it's just sort of like kind of an average poem, nothing going on, wind blowing, corks bobbing, all this kind of thing, and then he goes to the start of chapter five, and there's like a corpse hanging from a tree with with limbs twitching, um, which is a bit <laughs> humility. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, well, uh, the actual uh, book, the chapter, it starts with uh, one Mr. Krupe. Um, traveling through his dreams and he's basically walking out of the city until he gets into an inn where he meets uh, a bunch of mysterious beggars and a uh, very interesting incident. Yeah, that's right. He's, he sits down and chats to the sort of malnutritioned uh, <laughs> inhabitants of this inn, doesn't he? They're all sort of sat there looking worse for wear. And uh, then, of course, he has a debate with them as to who they are. Are they his doubts? Are they his virtues? Are they... It's uh, very, very interesting. And, of course, it's probably the best, uh, perfect, the perfect, um, introduction to get you the character of Krupa, because, uh, we have lots of his uh, trademark humor right to begin with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and is, uh, in, rather endearing, um, talking about himself in the third person, which is funny. Yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, Krupp, Krupp's one of my favourite characters. He's just—he's a real nice bit of comic relief in the middle of a quite dark series, um, and it's just sort of his his just general manner and the way he speaks to people and the way he talks circles around people. I always find really entertaining. Um, and I think I think these uh, guys who he meets in this in I think they are his virtues because when he makes the sort of the right call, as it were, they all start looking a lot more healthy about themselves and. Oh, it seems catch. like they've all put on weights, yeah. That's a good catch, but uh, I don't, I don't know how much will actually matter, which they are. But yeah, and so basically we got introduced to Krupe, and, um, and he decides he's going to uh, go and preserve uh, Darujistan from the various dangers we get. So it's a very uh, atmospheric piece, and then we transition right to the rooftops of Darujistan. That's um, right. So we get. Uh... Just trying to remember, who do we see on the rooftops first? Uh, is Crocus. it? It's Crocus first, yes. is it? Because <laughs> yes. we're we're quite a lot of time on these rooftops at the moment, uh, yeah. <laughs> which is a recurring sort of theme of the Rujistan. It's this sort of city within a city of the rooftops, which is home to the the uh, the assassins and the thieves. And Crocus is uh, making his way into the the Dal estate. Yeah, and uh, once he gets there, he's going to steal all these uh, these baubles that have been left for the daughter, who's obviously a, a very um, eligible young lady. Oh, yes. <laughs> very virtuous, if I should say so. So uh, while he's in there picking up the, 
the trinkets and the the baubles and all the rest of the gifts, he catches a glimpse of her sleeping, and uh, I think our our Crocus gets a bit uh, bit smitten with the young yeah. Chalice. Chalice Barmer, yeah, very virtuous. Um, then he escapes, but then uh, we are introduced to a certain assassin, Vladimir Talo, and uh, then he is uh, brutally murdered, as we might expect, uh, yeah. by a mysterious unknown uh, hunter, uh, Huntress, who knows, um, after Crocus is nearly killed, but, but then he picks up a certain coin. That's right. The, the spinning coin drops, and uh, Crocus picks it up. Luckily for him, <laughs> and it manages manages to actually the coin actually saves his life two or three times during this uh, this encounter. There's another time where I think he forgets that he's got it in his pocket, and it it heats up. And when he puts his hand in his pocket to get it, he sort of slouches to one side, and a a crossbow bolt just whips past his head. And yeah. All the rest, so. Obviously, it, and it's a two-headed coin as well, so obviously we've got uh, Opon, who we met uh, last week, yeah. have obviously uh, decided that Crocus is going to be their sort of avatar, I suppose, in well, Darugistan. Yeah, he's an agent of uh, randomness, you could say. Thieves do rely a lot on luck, he's wandering, yeah. And uh, then then we briefly meet his uncle, Mamot, and uh, then, of course, we... He's just uh, walking around, and the huntress, the the hunters, they're talking on the side, they're saying, like, uh, who saved this kid? And they're like, uh, someone with a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, someone must have been playing the joke on the, uh, on them. Yeah, I mean, they can, they can sense the amount of uh, power that's unleashed when the, when the coin first appears, can't they? So that kind of gives them a hint that something's up, and they're not very happy about that. Yeah, and... Uh, and then uh, Crocus goes to the inn, the, um, uh, the Phoenix Inn, where we have all, all the gang. Um, in the next chapter, we meet the gang, which is uh, Krupa and a junk guard by the name of Carl, Murillo, and also another assassin man called the Relic, Relic Nom. That's right. Uh, who different, and he's apparently on a mission of vengeance against one Lady Simtal. Yes, he is, although we don't know why at the moment. We just know that he doesn't like her very much. Yeah. And uh, she's not a very traditional lady. She, she's hanging out the council a lot. And, uh, you know, just about thinking about how Krupa has a red waistcoat, it kind of makes me think that he's kind of like this uh, British soldier dude. Like, the red coats. <laughs> I don't know, it's just funny. Um, yeah, so, you know, actually the uh, section with uh, on the rooftops was actually um, it was actually a part of a film script by uh, Erickson and Esselmont, which from which uh, a lot of elements of parts of the movie were taken. And uh, yeah, you can really see it. And it, it works well, even though it's not from the very typical of the uh, series. Yeah, there's a there's an element of farce to the whole chase with Crocus, where he sort of accidentally, sort of despite himself, it, these things keep happening to save his life. It's like something from a a comedy almost. <laughs> comedy of Shakespeare. Yeah, and um, chapter. Just uh, going back to that first scene with uh, Krupp, where he's yeah. going through his dream. Uh, what's the deal with those women? Uh, 
drowning cats in the oh, world? Oh, that's a good question. I, um, I, I really don't know. I mean, if I recall correctly, one of the free cities on Genovactus is called One-Eyed Cat, uh, but initially I thought that was the name, but uh, I don't think that really works. Yeah, because he says the symbolism's lost on the man as he hurries past, and I'm oh. sat there reading it thinking, am I supposed to get this symbolism? Because I'm just seeing a gang of women drowning some cats in a well, and it's weird. <laughs> well, maybe it's just Ayrton uh, mocking us for not being as smart as him, or <laughs> he's playing a joke because there is no symbolism. Could be. Or it could be could both be. because, you know, symbolism is just what you decided it is, so whatever. Yeah, I was just wondering if there was something that you sort of recognised from later on in the series that that was like a call-out to or anything like that, but it doesn't seem to sort of have any relevance, as far as I can tell. It must symbolise the hubris of the various... (laughs) (laughs) Could be. I don't think so. Uh, uh, Yeah, so uh, then, of course, we we meet another uh, big player in the Jerusalem scene, Alchemist Baruch. Chapter six. Yeah. There's also a pretty interesting character who is like, it's kind of funny how people actually come out and say, "Oh, you're the real power in Dirigistan." <laughs> uh, it's just funny because they generally, a lot of people try to get you to like understand that, or it's on the back cover or something. But few people like come out and say it. Uh, maybe it's because that was Rake and he's from outside your city. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just sort of that he's sort of running this secret cabal, isn't he? And while the yeah. the council are all scratching for influence, it's it's Baruch and the others who sort of really hold the power. And th- that's what's recognised by Crone when they make no attempt to uh, sort of send anyone to, to speak to sort of Terbenor or any of those characters. They go straight for, for Baruch. Although, how do we, how do we really see um, that uh, they control the city? We're told that. Yeah, I mean, there's, we don't get any evidence, certainly not at this point. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it might, might become a bit more, uh, apparent later on. Well, maybe, um, you know, we, they do get some, Baruch does get some vital information from, uh, from, uh, Circle Breaker, the spy, which could help. He's, he seems to be Circle Breaker's employer. Yeah, and I think he's, uh, he's Croups as well. Uh, as well as the, the entire sort of Phoenix in gang seem to report to him uh, on some level at least, so. I think so. Or he, he talks about, um, I think it's at the end of this chapter or possibly in chapter seven, there's a bit where he goes, uh, something about they've all saved my interests before, round them up and get them oh, together yeah. or something like that when he, yeah. when he's talking to Krupp, so. I, uh, I, thinking of this gang, I mean, what would I get? I, w- I wish at least that these these people could have get get a movie or something. Uh, yeah, that would be really. Cool. <laughs> that would be cool. I mean, you couldn't really make one of the entire series, or even, uh, even if you made something on scale of Game of Thrones, I don't think it would work. But taking so, if they were to take one element from the uh, Amazon series, I would be this. Yeah. Um, then we also have the the spy, the nameless one. Circle Breaker, who, who's spying on the, uh, on, uh, Turban to ignore. Yeah. And, uh, I, re- I really like the writing of that section where he's introduced and he's like reflecting on a Despot's part can, and which is, um, they're basically saying, uh, tyranny could turn at any moment and he has to stop it, and the only way to do that is by being a spy. Yeah. I really like yeah. that. Yeah. 
and then he has has the moment where he sort of uh, thinks about packing in the the spy game, where he has his little sort of crisis of confidence, where he goes to meet the agents, and then changes his mind and decides to sort of stick with it, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and uh, then there's then in uh, chapter seven there's a section where he like remembers his uh, youth, how he used to love, love going to the harbor and listening to stories and stuff, and then he became a pirate itself, and then. He must be old. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So back to back to chapter six. We start off with Crone uh, flying down from the moon spawn to uh, to the Gadrobi district, and she's heading in, and she meets uh, Baruch in his estate. Yeah. And entertaining banter. Yeah, I really like Crone uh, throughout the series. She's she's another sort of entertaining, sort of light relief character in many ways. Uh, I love the image of this crow sort of opening its beak to laugh silently. <laughs> now that I think about it, yeah. <laughs> I can I can picture the the image of this sort of crow the size of a Labrador. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, so then when then when uh, Norik pays pays a visit and she turns into a dog. Yeah, and he's <laughs> and like, like <laughs> don't listen to the dog; it just has a bad thing. Yeah, and he's like reaching down, patting the dog on the head and everything. Like, I don't think he'd do that if he realised what it was. <laughs> Raven could take his fingers off. Would that be? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, gives uh, she gives uh, Baruch some advice. I'm talking. It's kind of funny. It's like he has like a spirit animal <laughs> telling him what to do. That's really funny. Uh huh. Yeah, and uh, then we have uh, Rabbit putting the spine on. Everyone is basically buying this, uh, these chapters. So, so after after the meeting between Baruch and Orr, we have uh, we have Ralik uh, stalking uh, Lim and Simtel, yeah. and uh, he shoots one of them. And I, I don't know if you got the idea that he was actually aiming for Simtel. Yes, she was, and he was, and then he. Uh... He changed his mind. Yeah, or I, I wasn't sure if he changed his mind, or it's just yes, yeah, he, hit, I, he, hit, he hit the wrong target and just decided to roll with it. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, yeah, he just decided he's just going to kill uh, yeah, uh, Lin, and uh, then decided to uh, bring down some Tom and Winmart to cool away, which uh, I don't know how realistic that is, to be honest. Because he, he's an assassin, and he's kind of like, I think he's more of a practical guy than some, you know, villain who's always must have the most uh, elaborate plan to win, kind of weird. But, no, it's a fun story. Yeah, I was just wondering if maybe Oppon had something to do with how this uh, assassination turned out. If they could have maybe just a push or a pull here just to divert the bolt, but... Oh, well, I don't think Crocus was uh, around there, so I don't think so, but maybe. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then in Chapter 7, we have a dialogue between uh, Simtal and uh, Terminor, and she, she's uh, whining about how Lim's widow is already hanging out with Morelio. <laughs> and, yeah, Morelio yeah. is the real pro. <laughs> Basically, manages to get tickets to the to get her on feet, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the um, the meeting between uh, Rake and uh, Baruch. Oh yeah. Which is super cool. 
Yeah. Darkness is my natural home. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then when Rake finds out that the um the escaped mages from uh from Pale, uh, he gives his side of the story about what happened between uh the the T Standy and the 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 mages of Pale and how he it it from his perspective he was betrayed by the mages and after they fled the city he tracked them all down apart from two and now he wants their heads from Baruch. So he's not a guy to uh to play games with from the sounds of things. <laughs> Yeah, I really liked that, uh, little, uh, twist there, because I was thinking, like, oh, Rake is not a bad guy, but then he's a bit of a jerk for just wanting everyone's heads, and then you, and you realize why he wants it. Yeah. It's kind of justified. I feel like, I feel like at this point, Ericsson's still sort of playing with the reader about whether or not Rake's a bad guy or a good guy, or, you know, just a, a kind of somewhere in the middle guy, because, he seems perfectly reasonable when he's speaking to Baruch, and then he's like, "But yeah, I want those guys' heads. <laughs> they pissed me off, and, and now I'm gonna kill them." And um, I, I love that when he says he's gonna use his sword to kill them, uh, <laughs> Baruch's like, I'll, "I'll I'll give you the heads. It's fine. It's fine. You don't need to use that that monstrosity to kill them. It's gonna be okay." Yeah. <laughs> I like how Eric said basically, "Pretty much how how." Terrible, like, the uh, break story days. I mean, the sword, uh, I, I can, ju- I can just see Erickson, like, you know, in, I don't think this actually happens in the book, but it's like someone says, someone should say to Rake, like, you're a monster, and then, uh, Rake starts expounding on why everything he did is totally justified, <laughs> and, and, I mean, that would be cool. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a great bit where Baruch, uh, looks at the, the sword, and he sort of, he just gets the impression of this sort of the tendrils of power sweeping off it, and he feels like he's gazing into the abyss. And... So it's uh, obviously a, a pretty, pretty serious and terrifying weapon. Uh, that's really good. Um, but I like how at the uh, end of the chapter, uh, at the end of the chapter, we have like his shouting at the end first that he knows I know you're here and I'm going to beat you. I don't care what. He's like, it's cool because you know, it's mystical. Like this is well, where is the empress? And so that is another, uh, which is a lot to do with it, which is kind of. Uh, so then, where to next? We're back at the Phoenix Inn again, I think. I think so. Yeah. Uh, um, so we meet a lot of people, including uh, Salty, and we have a card game with a cryptic and forever, too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, so it's the first time we see, I think, all four of the, the gang together. So you've got Krupp, Ralic, Marillo, and uh, Crocus. Oh, and, and Col as well, uh, asleep, I think, on the table. <laughs> Col the alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I love the way... Uh, Krupp just spins his turn on and on and on, just refusing to make a move so that everyone else basically gives up and he technically wins the game on that basis. <laughs> yeah, that, that is pretty typical of Krupp. Uh, yeah, now that I think about it, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and he just uh, turned on about it, talking about how he has amazing mage powers and he saved Vralik uh, from six million guys. Return them to Ash, which I feel is somewhat less than uh, genuine. Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, Krupp has 
some kind of power. Um, we we find out earlier that he's got Divination, something yeah. something fairly magical about his dreams, and he he has the power of divination and all the rest. But I don't think his powers extend to reducing people to piles of ash. Uh, yeah, he's too subtle for that. <laughs> he probably like uh, I don't know, talk to them and uh, ramp along yeah. until they turn themselves into ash. <laughs> yeah, they could have set fire to themselves, or he could, he could have kept them. <laughs> he could have kept them sort of entranced in conversations for so long that they just wasted away. But I couldn't see him uh, sort of throwing fireballs around like a, no, a Dungeons and Dragons mage. No, it's way it too subtle for that. Uh, yeah, and um, then um, next chapter we have the Crocus egg. Yeah, he changes his mind and returns to the stuff he uh, stole from. There from my Darley's, which is uh, really, um, it's a twist, which uh, I, I don't know how um, how reliable it is. Like he decides to return the stuff, and uh, everyone seems to be pretty much okay with that. Yeah, he's uh, he's yeah, he's. I think at this point he's kind of hatching a plan where I don't know if he's going to go up to this girl and say, "Hey, here's your stuff back." Uh, just, <laughs> sorry, just sorry, bro. <laughs> Sorry, I stole it, and also noticed you were naked. Or, <laughs> or is he just going to sort of sneak in and break in again and put everything back the way it was and leave a note? I don't know what his what his scheme is at this point, and I doubt he's got the idea himself. But he speaks to Krupp, and Krupp's going to get the stuff back for him. Also manages to palm the coin at this point, and uh, Krupp makes a a copy of the coin out of wax without uh, Crocus noticing. Apart from the fact that there's a bit of a waxy residue on the on the coin, but he kind of waves it off. Yeah, and uh, what was I going to say? Uh, <laughs> you should just uh, have confidence in his crowd. <laughs> I don't see what's this all this sneaking around for. Like, he's being a pretty sophisticated for a crew fair stalker. Yeah. Uh, I, I just like the name of the, uh, the pawn shop dude's name, the Crew Italian. Oh, is that the one that uh, Murillo and Ralic use for the yeah. for the meeting? Yeah, yeah. I, I like the, I like that idea of uh, sort of the again. It's like the secret society of the the assassins guild and the sort of little places they have that they can use that no one knows about, and you know, a secret room in the back of a a fake pawn shop and things like that. Well, which uh, kind of reminds me when uh, Ralic feels like he gets told by uh, his clan leader Aquat. Uh, he said, "Hey, Doogie, your revenge and totally saved your life." And then he tells him to go basically show everyone that he's an assassin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, uh, that was quite funny. Like, make, yeah. Make it obvious to every idiot that you're a man and you're an assassin. Yeah, that's uh, Crute, isn't it? No, no, no. That's uh, Akamat, uh, clan. Oh yeah. The clan leader. That's right. Uh, funny. Um, uh, why? Why did you do that again? Uh, or do we not know yet? Uh, at the moment, we don't know what um, what Ralik's beef is with with Simtel. Um, we suspect uh, that Murillo's involved. Um, no, I was asking. Oh, no. I was asking where why I told him to like make sure that one knows he's an assassin. Uh, oh, um, I think he wanted to use him for bait. Uh, oh, yes, for the uh, the hunter. Yeah, because they're trying to sort of turn the table on this. Uh, this group that's uh, hunting the assassins 
because they don't know where it's come from. They don't know if it's Imperial Claws or if it's someone within the guild who's trying to make a grab for power. Yeah, I think, or at I least think they've I'd... ruled out the Imperials as someone from the guild. Yeah. Uh, they seem to think it's the uh, Empire. Yeah, well, the the claw are always uh, pretty healthy suspects for any unexplained murders, aren't they? It's, that's their whole shtick. Yeah, the claws of the gaps. You don't know something, but the claws. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of uh, like this, how no one, no one even knows who anyone else is. Like, yeah, earlier on, the, the uh, Malzans don't know who's in the Moon's Bond. And now they don't know who's attacking. It's, it's kind of uh, it adds a bit of realism, which I like. Yeah. And speaking of uh, Moon Spawn, of course, we meet Ray for the first time, which was also cool. Mm-hmm. And um, then, of course, we have a conversation between uh, Turbinor and Baruch, and <laughs> well, which uh, Baruch totally owns him. Yeah. Like, uh, you just want everyone. Everyone is basically telling Baruch, oh, you just want. Uh, to be to rule the city is that like, child is a joke. Yeah. Uh, or, it's, or it just doesn't matter because the Mazans don't care, which is possible. Yeah. <laughs> and the Baruch's like, oh, I don't, you know, good thing for you that I have no vote in um, the council. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, and the, the council sort of send a little tent out, don't they, uh, to park it beneath Moonspawn and, so far, <laughs> no one from Moonspawn's paying them any interest. <laughs> yeah, like the first thing you notice is the tent. <laughs> looking, looking down, it's like, oh, it's a cool city. Oh, tents. Then they must be trying to contact us. Yeah. <laughs> Even better, you see this bunch of uh, Dojistan people like shouting up, like, "Hey guys, we want to talk." <laughs> I just love the image of this, the, the sort of the self. Because the council are so sort of self-important and so so arrogant, and they just sort of send out this little tent, and you can just imagine them sitting there going, "I'm sure someone will be down any minute to say hello." <laughs> <laughs> it's like three days later, guy hasn't shaved or eaten. <laughs> <laughs> they just like they start um, like talking like formally, like uh, we hum- we hum- we humbly invite you to talk with us, and then like two days later, it's like get the fuck down here. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> if, if the uh, speculative uh, do just a movie where would you made, that would have to be. Yeah. Yeah, do just a quite a cool place. Yeah, I love the um, the idea of it all being uh, sort of this gas-powered city, oh, which yeah, seems yeah. sort of almost kind of steampunkish in in the medieval setting. The idea of having this sort of system of gas pipes under a city that sort of keeps everything lit at night in this in this beautiful blue light that yeah, makes it shine in the desert very yeah and uh, i kind of think of these uh gray faces who spurted that they uh they uh, watch the the gas pipes i think of them as kind of like these people with uh gas masks actually right okay i was i was I've like always wondered what the deal was with those guys because they're never really, or as far as I know, they're not explained. They uh, just uh, so take the... care of the gaps, though. Yeah. <laughs> or, uh, yeah, I kind of think of him like that's the the Sandman, like that the mask. Yeah. Walk around that night. They, they could be pretty creepy, actually. Yeah. The way they sort of, because you never hear anyone mention seeing a grey face out and about during the day. But they all appear at dusk and start lighting all the yeah. lanterns and then disappear again and something something weird about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I, I wish there were a subplot or something, but I don't think that happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Georgistan is a very good uh, piece of world building on Erickson's part, and uh, maybe also Esselmont. Like, I don't know exactly what the uh, division was there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so then, Chapter 7, uh, we're back in Troop's Dreams, and he's. <laughs> This time he's he's taken us out uh, into the plane. Yeah. And uh, and we meet uh, Karul, the elder god. Oh yes, Karul. Yeah. The, uh, he's been woken up by uh, blood spilled on his belfry. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think it was the uh, the assassin in chapter four, five. Oh. Was, yeah, <laughs> Tallo was uh, was killed while yeah. he was climbing the belfry. So. So, uh, yes, Kirill's been woken up because, uh, he seems to be a pretty nice guy, actually, but I don't know how it works when you're, like, uh, fed by blood. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, he's he's got a pretty scary hood, but <laughs> but he's uh, he's just chilling by the fire, and he's, you know, he's nice to Krupp, and he's uh, told him to watch for this child who's going to come who he needs to, to help. Yeah. Or, or, or the woman, uh, the Talanimas and the woman who are going to come. They're the Awakeners. Yeah, it's uh, it's very pretty cryptic on his part, of course. Yeah, which is how how things are throughout the series. You get just when you feel like you you know what's going on, something really cryptic happens, <laughs> like, uh, and you don't you don't get an answer. <laughs> They're like, uh, who the heck are the Slanimas, who are wise awakeners with the capital A? And yeah. They're like, oh, well, I must have missed something, and they start reading it again, so, you know, shit. Sure. Yeah. I think uh, we've got Kurul uh, preparing for a battle that, that he knows he's, or that he suspects he's going to lose, so that's quite sad for him. Yeah, sometimes you just have to do that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I wonder what battle that is, um, in t- in terms of the whole series, um, I'd say it's the one that starts in MOI. Uh, um, yeah, maybe I guess, but because uh, he's the he's kind of a sort of big sort of part of the background of that battle, uh, even if he's not sort of directly acting in it. Yeah, I, mean, I just don't see why it's mentioned this early. But... Yeah, especially because we don't know. Who this cruel guy is, or what his sort of place in the world is at this stage. So the fact that he's got a losing battle coming up ahead of him isn't sort of super revelatory or anything. It's like, oh well, you know, oh, sad well, for you, but it's just that guy. He's like, the two guys are like reading really books. They say, oh, remember the guy's gonna who's gonna lose in the battle? Oh yeah, him. Yeah. And maybe maybe it was just so remember him. He is kind of lucky he has that apostrophe in his name, so otherwise you just call him cool. Yeah. Nice. I think, um, uh, looking at discussions about, uh, pronunciation on Reddit, it tends to come up every week or so. <laughs> uh, someone, someone's like, how do we pronounce this thing? How do we pronounce that True. thing? Is there a guide anywhere or anything like that? I think that the, the apostrophe in the name means that it's what's called a glutal stop. Which yes. means you sort of stop for no reason and then carry on, I think, is the, is the best way I can, uh, get my head around it. So instead of cruel, it's cut rule, is yeah. how I see it, but I don't know. Uh, I'm not much of a, a linguist, so. Yeah, <laughs> I'll leave that you, to could, the others. you could just listen to the audiobooks, I mean, but I don't think even they have a uniform pronunciation. Yeah, I guess you could, you could pronounce it any, any way you want, I suppose. 
So we have to decide which commands Kai will disobey and have which. Yeah, it's also a bit of a problem. Yeah, so. So, so after Croup's dream, we uh, we pick up again with Circle Breaker, um, and this is this is the part I think I was talking to earlier, um, where uh, where he's uh, having doubts about uh, his, his role in this as a spy, and he feels a bit exposed uh, because of the the fallout from Councilman Lim being killed. Um, he's he's afraid that uh, Orr's going to be looking for spies, and that that road's going to lead to him. So he thinks about asking for help, and then he reminisces for a bit and <laughs> stands on the pier for a while, yeah. and then he changes his mind and carries on with his day. And then we get another mention of this mysterious eel as well. The eel. The eel. Is he, is he electric? I don't know. <laughs> I think he's slippery, is, is where it comes from, rather yes, than but, electric. But, <laughs> but right if there's gas, there could be electricity. But yeah, that would be cool too. <laughs> that, it would be so cool if, like, was the, at the end of the book, there's like in a sewer, they find this uh, talking electric eel who <laughs> electrocutes yeah. everyone and they die. He's just like some sort of Zeus type character, chucking lightning bolts at everyone. I could, I'd be on board with that. Especially in Malazan, that would fit totally. It would, it would. Uh, then he would probably be revealed to be like the guy who created the deck. <laughs> And then we go to Lady Simthal, who, uh, without wanting to pass judgment, uh, Lim has just died, and now she's got Tabernor in a bed. I'm not, I'm not saying anything. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just laying out the facts, and uh, some people might take a bit longer to grieve. Is all I'm gonna say. <laughs> and she's sort of trying to manipulate Or and into sort of acting in a particular way. She doesn't want him to do this uh, neutrality proclamation to the Malazans. She doesn't think it's a good idea, at least. What is Simtal even trying to do? I mean, what is her interest in anything, really? I mean... I mean, it's, it's hard to say what, what her game is. I think she's just sort of trying to preserve a position um, and advance herself, whereas uh, Orr quite clearly wants to get this, get in the good graces with the Malazans, yeah. and he sees himself as being their sort of top guy in Darugistan, once the uh, sort of occupation comes to a head. Uh-huh. Um, and she sort of reminds him about what happens to Pale's nobility, which yeah. <laughs> I think was pretty much a wholesale slaughter, um, but obviously but he, he knows a bit him. more. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So I think get the impression these two are both just kind of using each other because it satisfies their their own ambitions at the moment. Neither of them seems particularly in love with the other. Um, they kind of they're quite dismissive of each other. They they talk quite badly to each other. Yeah. <laughs> that any basis for a relationship? Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe she just like enjoys manipulating people. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Krupp shows up at um, Baruch's house, and, and, uh, and uh, yeah, find out about the coin. Krupp is really alarmed by everything going on, uh, so it ends with uh, Baruch asking Krupp to gather everyone. Uh, I really like, kind of interesting, that, like, um, Krupp had panics about 
and he panics about how Baron Crocus is now really in danger. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's inter- interesting that he doesn't tell Baruch uh, that it's uh, that it's Crocus, or he sort of lets it slip, and then Baruch says, "Oh, that's a name I know." And Crook doesn't let on that he knows that Crocus is Baruch's nephew, uh, which is interesting because I think it is well known. Uh, I think um, Baruch's nephew. I think, or he's or he's sort uh-huh. of his. Uh, he's not. I don't think he's technically related to him, but I think Baruch's kind of been caring for him. If I remember correctly, Crocus is like uh, kind of apprenticed to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So maybe we have there a bit of uh, emotion in the Crook. Now uh, the game is coming close to him. Yeah, but yeah, Crocus is certainly in danger now because he's possessing this this coin. Um. So, yeah. So now that he's going to have a chapter and the book, which is a pretty short uh, sub-book, yeah. it depends with, the, uh, with uh, basically swinging into action, and and it's uh, very exciting thing going on. I mean, the, the point of this book is basically to introduce yeah. everything, which I think it, it did very well. Yeah. I think that the initial structure of this book, where you start out with first, you have you meet all the Imperial guys in book one, then book two brings us to the, the Darugistan gang, and then book three sort of brings them both together, yeah. uh, and then it just sort of goes on from there. So it's it's a nice sort of structure to the book and I the like way it introduces the characters um, with, with no sort of real overlap yet, which is kind of mirrored throughout the series, because when you get different books shooting from location to location where you'll pick up with some characters and then they're forgotten for the next book. So yeah. I think the way sort of the structure of this book stru- mirrors the structure of the series, although probably not entirely intentional, given the the, the time scales of when they were written, uh, does uh, it feels quite satisfying. Yeah, uh, I think this book is one of the uh, more uh, satisfying ones in and of itself, of course. Um, so yeah, that, that's pretty much it for this week. Uh, mm-hmm. So we get the um, a nice sort of introduction to the the gang in yeah. Darugistan. Yeah. And uh, then next time we'll be back on to uh, to the mission, the which we, where we'll see the the bridge burners turn up. Yeah, so that's, that's also pretty short. But, yeah. But uh, also very good. Actually, I think I don't think they made up with the Darugistan book yet, but uh, well, yeah. Do you think we'll do all the book um, next week, next time? Um, let's Could see, book three, it's about two, hundred uh, pages. So. Yeah, I, th- I think we can do that. It's another another three chapter job, isn't it? So, Eight, yeah. nine, and ten. Yeah. Okay, that that sounds very uh, good. So yeah, so before we go, make sure to uh, like us on Facebook if you haven't done so already, and uh, comment on the blog at malzonfriend.blogspot.com, and of course we are now on iTunes, so make sure to rate us. Uh, yeah. Thanks very much, everyone. Thank you. See you in a... Um, see ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.